Welcome to Subtext and Discourse, and what will likely be the last interview for 2019. As always, I'm your host, Michael Dooney. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Christus Valbornas, who was in Berlin for a few days at the end of September. Krista not only took part in our postcard salon, but also surprised me in Arles when she booked me to review her portfolio during the opening week of the festival. Krista shares a lot of insight into her project about displaced person camps in Germany, which she's been documenting for the past few years. Her unique photographic process, as well as how this personal story and shared history is very relevant in these uncertain times. With that said, I hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with Krista Svalbornas. The last time I saw you, actually, was in Arles. Yeah. But... We were in touch before that for the postcard salon, yeah. and I guess Arles was only in July, and you're still in Europe, so what have you been doing in the last <laughs> few months? Um, well, I, well, I went back home Yeah. because I teach, mm-hmm. so I had to go back to start teaching. But when I saw you, mm-hmm. I had just, in, in Arles, I had just finished my last round of documentation for, for that, um, the work on displaced person camps in Germany. So you're back to continue the work or you're showing I was it? back because I was invited to be a conference keynote, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. In, in Munich, uh, right outside of Munich in Eichstatt for the symposium on DP camps in Germany. So I presented there Sunday, this past Sunday, and then hopped over here to Berlin. Oh, cool. Yeah, and then I go back on Sunday to the U.S. When you say DP camps, because yes. I guess we spoke a little bit about it. Yes. Also, mm-hmm. I better understand. Deportation camps, concentration camps, forced labor camps, like there's, there must be some differentiation or what's the... Yes. So, um, so this is a, like a sort of parallel story to the Jewish history here in Germany, but that's different because this is surrounding... Um, Soviet history, actually. Mm-hmm. So what I've been focusing on is researching former Baltic displaced person camps in yeah. Germany that existed right after the war. So 1945 to to about 1955, they're about 10 years here in Germany. And those were all individuals that were Latvian, Lithuanian, Estonian, all fleeing Soviet occupation right at the end of the war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the difference between that and like, although... Some of the DP camps, interestingly enough, were former forced labor camps that they ended up using just to house refugees. In some cases, I found that some were, one uh, was a former concentration camp that used to house refugees. So they were housed in a lot of different spaces that had, you know, a lot of different uses prior to them being in there. Okay. Uh, But it's different than a concentration camp, uh, that history at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So these are in, you documented them in Germany? Or? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I've been traveling around for the past three years, almost every summer, finding these former locations and then documenting them. It's a little tricky to find them mm-hmm. because there isn't, there's no archive that lists exact addresses for these spaces. And so it's a lot of um, cross referencing, some from like memory of of refugees who were in the spaces, yeah. some from like the UN archives. The UN archives in New York houses the most comprehensive database for this history, but it's not comprehensive enough to include addresses. Yeah, um, I guess a lot of them would have changed as well. Like streets change their names, some, they get rebuilt. Yeah, some of them, in most cases, um, the streets are the same actually. Wow, um, okay. Yeah, it's really interesting. That There's been a few cases where I've had to contact a local archive that's in the town that I'm researching. And I say, look, this is the address I have. The street's not coming up. 
this is the images of the, the buildings. And then they'll follow up and they'll be like, oh, that street was renamed to this street. And these are the buildings you're looking for. But in most cases, the streets are still the same. Wow. Yeah. Do you use, I don't know why I just thought of it, but do you use like Google Earth? Oh my God, yes. All yeah. the time. Yeah. <laughs> without that, I doubt I'd be able to find like half of these camps without doing that kind of thing. So in the UN archives, even though they don't have addresses, they sometimes have map plans of the camps. So they sort of aerial layouts. Some of them will have streets and many of them don't. It's just like a schematic yeah. of the layout. Uh, and so I'll take that right to Google Earth. I'll know the town that it's for and then I'll just look around and match the buildings up and see what's, what's there and what's not. Uh, so yeah, without Google Earth, it would have yeah, been very guess, hard. Yeah. Well, I mean, where else do you get the satellite imagery yeah, from, really? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Wow, and then I guess you can't, you probably have to go out in the forest then a lot. There's probably no paths or roads to a lot of the places, or are they, are they used at all or accessed? Or have you ever gone to any and then found people squatting in them or anything like that? No, no, they all have strange uses now. So, and in most cases, the camps were never housed like in the central sort of village or downtown part of any town or city. They're usually like a little bit in the, in the outside of, you know, the downtown area, but never, well, I can't say never. There are a few that were like very remote that might've been in the woods, but they're usually populated in some kind of apartment area or something like that. So, oh, so they're not always abandoned. No, no. Very rarely are they abandoned now. Oh, okay. That is interesting. They all have different uses now. So some have been turned into a comp, uh, apartment complexes. Uh, some are commercial buildings that are used for any kind of commercial businesses. So they could be these, they could have been used for this in the past and people might not even know. Yeah, that's usually the case is that I'll have these like very lovely, helpful Germans <laughs> who I'll be photographing these buildings, you know, not in the downtown area. And then they'll try to be very nice and say like, oh, no, 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 you're, this is not the, the place that you should be photographing, you're, you know, <laughs> you should walk about 10, 10 blocks that way. And that's where the historic built, you know, and I'll be like, well, actually I'm looking for these TP camps and yeah. <laughs> and so so yeah so most cases people don't know at all but everyone's been very generous I mean there have been times where I've been photographing you know a private home mm -hmm. that might have been used um, as part of the camp and people will come out and ask you know what are you doing can I help you <laughs> and then I'll say well you know I'm here researching these camps from, from World War II, and they're like, oh, okay, no problem, and they just walk right inside and, really? wow. and allow me to keep photographing. Yeah, they've been very, very, the German people have been very generous. Oh, that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, it's been really lovely. I guess what initiated the project, what was the initial impulse to yeah. say, I'm going to document these DP camps specific to people that have kind of fled Soviet um, oppression? So it started first as a personal family history. So my mom was in Esslingen DP camp as a child for five years. And then my dad was in Hanau DP camp right outside of Frankfurt for about five years. So it was really a start of like understanding that familial history. Mm -hmm. And then it became, you know, much, much more. So the Baltic population in the United States is quite tight, like the community is pretty, um, we all know each other. And so when people heard that I was doing this, there was like, can you find my camp? Can you find my camp? You know, my parents camp, you know? And so, yeah, so it became like a lot, a lot bigger than, than just sort of like a personal oh, wow. family. I mean, project. I think, I mean, I've heard that that's quite, not, I wouldn't say a popular thing, but it's not uncommon, I guess, for people in the United States to be 
tracing their roots and be really quite passionate about it. Yeah. I think when the, I guess when the internet first kind of came about in the 90s, so many people wrote to my parents saying, oh, we're tracing our family tree. Can you help us with this? And can you send us this information? And yeah, they're all from America. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, a lot of the, well, the big um, ancestry.com, I think, is, you know, housed in the U.S. And so that, uh, you know, a lot of people will go there to sort of look up their, their family history. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. You said that the people with the Baltic heritage all find each other in the U.S. and then network together. Yeah. With the way the images are shown, and maybe I can take some pictures of them later, because I think when I very first saw the images, it's really difficult to appreciate like the level of detail and craftsmanship. They're floating in the frames, you've cut them out. Did you want to talk a little bit about your process and how you combined the, like, the text with the images, the effect that you've created, and what the initial inspiration was to present them in this way? Because mm. I've not seen anyone present work in this way before. Mm. My initial round of documentation, um, which was in the summer of 2016, so I came back to the U.S. and I had all these images, and I didn't know how I would approach the history at all. You know, mm-hmm. it was heavy. Because I guess there's a lot of pictures of post-war buildings. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah, and then it's sort of like an emotional history, I guess, for, for my family. Um, and then also my husband's mother was in the camps too, so... I tried a lot of experiments um, that all failed. Mm-hmm. No, that's, <laughs> and, that's the reason you experiment, yeah. And um, I don't typically approach photography traditionally. I haven't for a long time. Um, I'm more interested in shifting from a traditional 2D plane and trying things that are more experimental. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I happened to be learning how to use a laser cutter at the time that I was doing these tests from these archives that I had found actually a lot of addresses from these Lithuanian archives in Chicago. I also found all these letters that the refugees were sending mostly to the United States and to England mm-hmm. asking for um, basically asylum. They all wanted they all wanted to explain that they couldn't go back, they couldn't get repatriated like many of the other refugees could. And so they needed to find a home elsewhere. And so a lot of these letters talk about that. And it just clicked. I felt like, is there a way that I can combine, you know, their words with my images? And then I was learning the laser cutter and I thought, well, can I do it with a process of burning, which sort of echoes the traumas of war. And that's where I just came up with this thing. But it took me about a year of research in how to use the laser, not have like the images burn away completely and figure out how to balance that with, you know, the text and image as well. So, yeah, because yeah. the effect is also really special because they look like sepia almost. Mm. And I guess that's just a, a happy coincidence or a consequence of yeah. the process. Yeah, that's all just from, from that burning process. And how do the images themselves printed? Are they the inkjet prints? Or you... Yeah, they are. They're, uh, yeah, they're pigment prints um, on, you know, like a heavy sort of uh, photo paper. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, and then I make these really detailed files and, and laser cut. Yeah, wow. And so are there many more? Well, how many have you documented up until now? And how many do you have left? Or will this continue perpetually until you find oh, no. you run out? <laughs> no, there's so many. I think there's like at least 200 camps that were for Baltic citizens. And a lot of them, like I said, some of them were these forced labor camps, which were wooden barracks. So a lot of those don't exist. Nothing, oh, okay. nothing remains from that. So I've documented, I finished the last round this summer, done with that, okay. that part of it. <laughs> There's a whole 
different part now that's arising. Um, so in total, 46 camps. I've documented mm. 46 camps. And then now what I'm doing is finding individuals in the U.S. and Canada who lived in these spaces and going to them, taking their portrait and recording their history, oral history. So I hope to make it all into a book. Cool. Yeah. Sounds really nice. Yeah. How was the response when you presented the work in all at the festival? Mm, everybody really loved it. Yeah. It's it's always gotten um, a positive response at reviews, which is great. Yeah. So there's uh, an exhibition that I have coming up July 2020 that starts in, in Riga in the photo museum there. It then is going to travel to Kaunas, and that was from Arles, from mm-hmm. that connection at Arles. So it's going to travel to the Lithuanian Photo Festival there. And then it's starting, there's like some places in Germany that are interested in, in showing it. So I'm hoping to like kind of circle it around oh, wow. Germany too, yeah. And the conference you were at, that was It was a symposium. Maybe, or... um, it was a symposium on displaced person camps, well, a specific displaced person camp in Germany, in mm-hmm. Eichstatt. Um, but there were pr- other presenters who were doing more, you know, general displaced person camps in that area of Southern Germany. And that woman who arranged the conference found me on the internet. Really? Yeah. yeah. She found me on the internet through this probably search through, you know, because I have all of my pieces are labeled after the town, after mm-hmm. the town that the camp was in. And so I think she must have done, you know, a Google search that way and then found me and reached out. She really liked the work. Yeah. Um, and, and I was, you know, the only artist amongst a whole series of historians Wow. That were present that presented at the symposium, so it was really interesting to kind of be in that universe. It was really great. Yeah, it sounds really exciting. Yeah. Because what was your background before? Were you always active as a photographer and an artist, or did you start with history or sociology <laughs> or something? Um, no, always been a visual artist, but um, I've been always interested in sort of like a research-oriented process, I guess. Yeah, I, I kind of function that way, where I like this sort of research, and then I produce work surrounding that research. Yeah. So when you, you would mentioned before about producing a book, will you include a lot of the documentation and like research and things when you ultimately make the publication? Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, I have a mass amount of, you know, archive letters mm-hmm. and then archive maps and all this data that I'd love to include in the in the book, in the publication. Yeah. yeah. And were there any did you meet any people at the symposium that want to write about your work or you're staying in touch or I am I am absolutely yeah. staying in touch yeah. I think there might be there might be some people might tap for like a foreword or something like yeah. that for it to have a historical approach yeah absolutely which was great it's really it was really really great yeah, yeah. and I think it's also because I had no idea about this su- subject before yeah. and I imagine for many other people it's the same and it's a nice soft entry into a heavy topic yeah through the work and then you can kind of learn about a whole I guess a whole section of history that you may not have otherwise been aware of. Yeah, yeah, I've been finding that a lot. And it's interesting because the history is, in a way, cyclical. Some some of the camps I've visited are now housing Syrian refugees. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's sort of like this repurposing for the new wave of refugees of these buildings, you know, that historically housed refugees. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get too political, but how is it then? Because obviously you live in the U.S. Yes. and... I guess from afar, we see all the different developments and I guess, yeah. maybe not developments isn't the right word. We yeah. see the, the... Complications. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the topic is, yeah, very much in the zeitgeist now. Yes. How has it been like since you started the project or even before being aware of your family's own history and then seeing 
how things are, I guess, deteriorating, for want of a better word. Like, what has the response changed to your work, or have you noticed, like, a difference in people's attitudes? I've noticed, um, at least from that, no, this is from the arts community in the U.S., so I've noticed an increase importance in actually showing this work and, and getting this history um, out there. Mm-hmm. So... Yes, it's a very hot topic. I mean, you know, we talk about immigration in the U.S. all the time that comes up, who we let in, who we don't let in. I think people in the United States, for better or for worse, are a little bit less aware of certain historical events that have existed. And so for this work, I found that people find it really important to to show it and really important to, to acknowledge this history so that it broadens the context of you know, what's happening today for, for people. I think even as well, like from my own kind of naivety coming from Australia and being really, really far away from a lot of things. Yes, we know about the two world wars, the you know various events that happened leading up to it and after that. But even what happened in the former Yugoslavia and around the Baltic region and a lot of other places like that, that was only 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it doesn't get nearly the same amount of his attention yeah. as the the Second World War, but that's also when our kind of parents, grandparents' generation, mm-hmm. we're, we're repeating a lot of the same things. Our short-term memory or our long-term memory for tragic events isn't very long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, either that or it's just not being taught really that way. You know, there's there's a difference in how, how history is being communicated mm-hmm. um, or maybe edited, I guess. Uh, so yeah, it, it is it is odd to think about that. Because I suppose your exposure to it is through your familial connection. So mm-hmm. if your parents weren't a product of this displacement, you probably wouldn't have known about it either. Absolutely, yeah. And that's uh, that's completely common with people that I talk to about it in America. Yeah, that's the first thing I'll hear. Like, oh, I never heard about that. Well, it's not surprising that you <laughs> haven't heard about it. You know, three little countries, like, it's... Not, not as large as some other histories out there. Interestingly enough, though, there was quite a big repatriation, not repatriation, but there's a quite a big um, collection of these Baltic refugees that made it to Australia. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. yeah. So there are some yeah. Australian communities that were heavily Baltic. My aunt, who was in one of the camps, Esslingen in Germany, she actually went to Australia. She was in Australia for years before she came to the U.S. Yeah, we're both nations of immigrants. So mm-hmm. It's not surprising. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I guess you're still quite heavily focused on this project. How do you work normally as a visual artist? Do you have a number of different projects that you're working on at the same time? Or do you just focus on one large body of work, complete that, and then start on the next one? Usually that's the way I work. I mean, there there is a body of work that came before this one that I'm still here and there making a few pieces for. But I tend to like be very focused and sort of finish this task and then move to the next. I already know what my next body of work is going to be. Oh. <laughs> I have it in my head, I already know, and I, I, already, I had started already documenting that. But I can't really get into it until I've sort of <laughs> done yeah. that. Yeah. But it will have a historical edge. Yes. So it's focused on actually former Soviet buildings in the Baltic countries. Mm-hmm. So I've been documenting these like large Soviet um, apartment complexes that were built during occupation times and kind of focusing on that history in the Baltics. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So you actually travel quite a lot then between 
the U.S. and Europe? I do. I've been I've been lucky enough to kind of figure that out. Yeah. Because where are you based, actually? I don't know. I've probably hadn't asked that before. Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. Yeah. Okay. Which is west? No, east. East. <laughs> yes. <laughs> U.S. geography. Shame on you. Yeah, it's east. It's very near New York, mm-hmm. so I can get you know access from New York and flights. Okay, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Really easy. So the next summer, I guess, is when you'll be back. Yeah, next summer is when I'll be back. And I'll be here for the exhibition opening, but then I'll also be documenting some of those buildings, those mm-hmm. Soviet buildings in uh, Latvia. Cool. Yeah. Um, it was really nice, actually, that you made it to Berlin. Quite a nice, happy coincidence. You were back again in Europe after, yeah, we met in the south of France earlier yeah. this year. Yeah. And yeah, thanks also for taking part in the postcard salon. The initiative, I think, in general has been really nice just to discover different people's work and how they approach what they're doing. And also a lot of artists that I probably wouldn't have been aware of otherwise right somehow discovered like the nicest thing for me was when we met in Ireland I actually got to see them physically yes and really appreciate the work because unless you see them in person the reproductions online don't do them justice I know that's my that's my difficulty with this work is like trying to figure out how to communicate that and I've started to do some some videos mm-hmm. so that people kind of understand the objectness of them yeah because I will get that all the time people are like oh I had no idea that they looked like this it looked like it could have been I don't know an overlay of text on top of an image or something else and yeah that's the one thing I didn't talk about is presentation of these this took a little bit of engineering so my husband actually designed the like the prototype of these and then mm-hmm. we had them had them manufactured I wanted them to float so that you could see a couple of the uh, pieces are two layers. They're not just one layer. It was a kind of decision of how do we get these two two layers to flow like perfectly mm-hmm. behind one another. And so this box within a box was invented and there's no adhesive. So it's the pressure of the two um, boxes on top of one another that kind of oh, holds wow. the piece together. Okay. Yeah. I was really sensitive to like the archival nature and I didn't want to use any kind of adhesive or anything like that. So that's how the, the two layer pieces were done. And then that transitioned to these single layer ones, which when lit properly, it's really beautiful to see how the type kind of reads yeah. onto the surface. So then that gives like a whole other dimension to these as well. If you visit Krista's website, which I've listed in the description below, you can view some videos that she's made of the pieces. Obviously this doesn't replace seeing them in person, however it does at least give you a better impression of how the works appear in reality. Thanks to Sebastian De La Luz for engineering the sound on the interview, you can hear other work from him on his SoundCloud page linked in the description. Please feel free to leave any comments, feedback or questions to this or any of the previous episodes of the podcast online. You've been listening to Subtext and Discourse, a podcast featuring interviews with artists and others involved in the shadowy art world. My name's Michael Dooney, and if you don't hear from me before, I wish everyone all the best for the holiday season, summer or winter solstice, depending which hemisphere you're in. Have a great Christmas, stay safe, and enjoy the remainder of 2019.